0: You know, we see how bumbling the demons are. We see how ridiculous the angels are, and how you know hypocritical they are. And I think that there's something about like giving more agency to humans in this, and the way that like humans can think for themselves and they can stand up to these things. And maybe that's what sort of what's going on here, rather than I think that's
1: what they're that's what they're going for, right? Like, I think if you zoom out and you're like, what is Neil Gaiman doing? Because Neil Gaiman's behind all of this, right? I think he's empowering humanity to stand up to demons, to stand up to angels and making humanity present at these really important conversations that are going on.
0: Welcome, friends, to episodes 278 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss the second half of Neil Gaiman's 2023 series, Good Omens 2. Welcome back. We are officially finishing up our coverage of Good Omens according to the end of last episode, but maybe a little teaser, it might not be the end of our coverage of Good
1: Omens forever. <laughs> I continue to underestimate uh, Neil Gaiman's willingness to extend this story. And like, no judgment, you know, it's, it's his prerogative, you know, I know. And I'm enjoying the ride. I just keep thinking like, oh no no, this has to be the f- be the end. And yeah. then I stand corrected. So I'm gonna stop saying that. Who knows how many seasons <laughs> of this we're gonna end up getting before it's over.
0: <laughs> well, I like that I keep getting doled information like at the correct time. So, you know, like I I didn't know previous to my research at the end of the show whether we were gonna get another season. Obviously I had thoughts as the season yeah. ended, but then I found some information about a possible season three that we can kind of get into.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about it here, let me mention uh, we got a comment on our last video. Um, It was by AC1839, uh, and they said, not going to spoil anything, but Neil Gaiman confirmed on his Tumblr that they were already working on Season 2 with the idea of it leading into a third and final season. Obviously, it's not guaranteed to happen with the strikes happening and Amazon still having final say over whether or not they'll greenlight Season 3, but Neil Gaiman said, if all else fails, he'll finish the story in novel form. Uh, which Love thank you that. for that comment. Um uh, that's yeah, a little bit surprising. I, I didn't think we were he was gonna go back to novel, but I understand like now that you've done season two, it seems like you need to finish it. Like you can't leave this kind of just as the the weird like to me, I mean, we'll get to the final episode, but to me that's like it's it's very much set up for another season now. Yeah. So um you gotta finish it in some way. And if that's not on TV, then yeah, you write the book, I guess. Yeah, I'm
0: really happy that someone wrote in to say that. And that, you know, sent me down a path of looking into more of what Gaiman has, has done as far as plotting this out. And last week, I mentioned that he and Pratchett had done some plotting in a hotel room that they shared of, of that they could continue good omens with. And unfortunately, they weren't able to get to it before uh, Terry Pratchett's death. But what I found out, this season of television is not what they plotted out.
1: Interesting. Okay. So
0: this is the connective tissue that Gaiman is writing to connect to a possible season three, which is what he and Terry Pratchett were working on. And I have a quote from Gaiman that says, "quote Because the hypothetical season three exists, there is a story that is there, and I didn't feel that we could drive straight from season one into that."
1: Interesting. Okay. We can revisit that as we're going through these final episodes. We have a lot to say about these final episodes. I'm excited to get into them. Before we do, I just want to get out a couple of um, important upcoming dates for our listeners. Um, And those of you who don't know, this might be interesting to you. Um, We take suggestions every quarter of the year for uh, a project to cover. Uh, So far this year, we've done Twilight and we've done um, Big Little Lies. And both of those were a lot of fun, very different ways. Um, We had a lot of fun covering them. And the way that we, that's how we take our uh, listener suggestions. The deadline to get your suggestions in for our next quarterly project is going to be on the 13th of this month. Um, and the way you're going to do that is going to go to Patreon, and um, you can either comment a suggestion or like or both uh, previously commented suggestions. And then we take the four that get the most votes by likes, and we're going to put that into a final poll. That poll will run through the week, ending on the 18th to vote on that poll, you do need to be a patron. Um, but our patron Patreon is only two bucks and you also get tons of extra content, um, bonus episodes we've done, um, over the years and stuff like that. So, uh, we invite you to participate in that and, and help us shape this show going forward. Um, and we'd love to have you on there.
0: To be honest, it helps the podcast to continue going. So, you know, we, we love our patrons moving into some of the, uh, research that I did something that I don't think that we've mentioned is there were petitions after the first season came out and it's fun to kind of get to react to the response to season one. Now there were petitions to cancel good omens by religious groups you know i'm sure you can understand (laughs) that those are the people who would be doing this but uh it's funny because i'm just going to read what happened an online petition erroneously requesting that netflix cancel good omens reportedly received more than twenty thousand signatures from people objecting to its content perhaps unaware that it was actually on amazon and had already been released in full so like (laughs) an entire show was out there wasn't Uh. necessarily going to be another season i think most people thought there wouldn't be
1: Yeah, I mean, we were among them. Um, That just reminds me, I was reading about when uh, Pratchett and Neil Gaiman originally met and, and, like, they were telling stories. uh, Neil Gaiman was telling stories with this interview. And he mentioned that they used to sign these books, Good Omens copies, people would bring out to get signed. And they would say stuff like, apply holy match here, uh, burn this book immediately, like all this (laughs) stuff because it was the whole idea that it was, like, you know, heretical to have this content. So that totally lines up. That's perfect. That's like perfect marketing, I think. I Yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> when these
0: book burns come in and banning and all that other stuff, I feel like it leads people to the book anyway, so. And remind me if we talked about this in our season one coverage, but the title sequence uh, is so unique and fun. Yeah,
1: it's very cool. I don't know if you have any like behind the scenes details about it, but I um, do, I, I I do a, love the style.
0: Yeah, I do have a little bit about it. So. I, I was always sure that it had it was somehow inspired by Terry Gilliam and, like, the, the cutout stuff he would do on um, Monty
1: Python. Yeah, we did mention that. <laughs> we both said that it reminded us a lot of, t- of uh, Monty Python, yeah. Okay, good.
0: So um, what I think is cool about the, the title sequence is that it kind of tells you the story of what's happening in the show. Yeah. And I think, a, as far as I know, it changes from episode to episode as the story progresses.
1: Yeah. I watched... I think I watched all but like one or two of them that I skipped. And, and then um, I started noticing, I was like, I think there is they're making little shifts. How important it is, I don't know. But they, I think I'm noticing little things being different. Um, each time which which is cool maybe it's worth watching them all
0: so it's chock full of easter eggs peter anderson the creative director at peter anderson studio the team behind the title sequence for both seasons of the show says the cinema scene will change from week to week to keep up with the new episode so it does change his favorite little detail though involves the scenes in hell because if you look closely a character from series one titles is trying to escape from hell again so there's like tons of easter eggs within the lore of this
1: that Uh, makes sense if you were to pause it and like try and figure out who everybody is and everything yeah. yeah
0: I think that's so cool and and he goes on to say we started the sequence for series two as a direct follow up from series one the content of the titles was an obsessively detailed telling of the new series story with a few gems for the avid fan. so I love thinking about like someone being hired for this like massive show with huge talent on it and they're an animation studio and they're going to set out to make something that's like a title sequence in the way that they can get so invested and so creative with it and have so many layers to it that like people just see it as a title title sequence it it flies by this title sequence is a great reason to say like this is still a place for people to perform their art and create something awesome in that way and like i said the detail that a filmmaker is bringing to even like trailers or you know, these title sequences like that's really notable stuff And it. And for me, I love a a good title sequence. And this title sequence is so iconic for the show. Like I get really excited to watch the show when it pops up. Let's just jump into the episodes now. If you didn't listen to our last week's coverage, I do highly recommend it. And we also have a season one. A uh, few episodes, three episodes, I believe, of season one. Check those out. I think out. we did four, actually. Four. We did
1: two on the book, and we, we used to do books a little slower, <laughs> yeah, back then, um, and then we did two on the show. Yeah, this is this is episode number six now on Good Omens for Us.
0: Episode 10, which is episode four of this season, is called okay. The Hitchhiker. <laughs> Make sure I'm doing my math right. <laughs> the demon Shax hitches a lift with the Aziraphale as he drives Crowley's Bentley back from Edinburgh, and deduces that Gabriel is hiding in the bookshop. In the 1940s, three Nazi agents go to hell after they were killed by a falling bomb. When they mention Crowley and Aziraphale, the demon Furfur offers to spare them eternal damnation and resurrect them as zombies if they spy for him. He hopes to get proof that the demon and angel are consorting to advance his rank in hell. Aziraphale is invited to perform magic on the West End. He plans to perform a potentially lethal trick, and with Crowley's aid, he manages to perform it successfully. Ferfer takes a photo of the pair's cooperation. He goes to present the proof to the Hell Council, not knowing Aziraphale switched the photo with a West End poster. Back in the present, Shaxx, with the permission of Beelzebub, plans to storm the bookshop.
1: Yeah, so this is a very, like, connective tissue kind of episode. Um, Again, it feels like one of those, like, the ongoing adventures of of Aziraphale and Crowley. Um, But these are always kind of fun to me um especially when like the it, it gives us a period look at them in a different time period um this was this also was a callback to the first season i think there's even like a sequence where it's from season 1 you can kind of tell i think um, so yeah. you know they brought back um um whatever that actor's name is who is like one of the co-creators of Sherlock, or something. Gaddis, I believe. Yeah, Mark Gaddis. Gaddis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was back, so I was, I was happy to see that. Seeing them in flashbacks, clearly yeah. starting
0: to trust each other, one, each other more and more, to the point that you're like, this this is something that like they've both their love for each other is something that's been clear for a very long time, and yeah. it's funny to like think about all the hijinks we've seen them get up to. So going back to season one and thinking about the fact that these scenes have already taken place. Um, and how much deeper that makes their relationship feel, because obviously that's been thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And um, this was a particularly interesting <laughs> since one. the Garden of Eden, yeah,
1: yeah, or before that, I guess actually. Yeah, I, um, I, I just think it's it's so funny to go with the like Nazi zombie, uh, yeah. sort of cliche, but but do it in a way that feels fresh, right? Like the the whole idea that they've negotiated, like, okay, you can come back as zombies, but you got to do this thing. Oh, by the way, you're also gonna like need to eat live human brains, um. And then the the physical comedy of these three, as they're like slowly sh- like falling apart and rotting, um, and, and walking around. But it's so funny too because they're also in like war. I think it's like uh, the bombing of of England. Yeah, um, Blitzkrieg yeah that that era so it's like people walking around with blood on their face and like shambling through the ruins no one like looks twice at them they're just like yeah that's how people look right now um so it's like the perfect time period for them to be zombies and have nobody seem to notice at all
0: you get to take different genre stuff like zombies and throw it into a show about angels and demons and you're like sure let's go with it like it it works for me it's fun it's like like you said it's kind of these interesting one off vignette kind of things that, yeah. that are fun and it's like this is Good Omens doing their zombie episode and this is them doing their, you know, Job episode or whatever from last mm-hmm. last week.
1: I also love the sequence when they're in hell and um they get shown the the spider eating the like commandant. And it's yeah. this, it's that weird uh, that that yeah. weird animation we were talking it's almost about.
0: Like, yeah, 2D stop animation kind of yeah.
1: stuff. And it's so funny. Like it's so ridiculous, but like Seeing it playing over and over again, it's like the 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 spider eats him and then like shits him out and then eats him again and he like becomes a fly or something and then eats again and. uh, I thought that was going to be a clue
0: with the fly, by the way. As I was starting to try to put all these theories together, as as I was wrapping up the show, I was like, "Oh, the spider maybe like Gabriel got eaten by the spider, turned into the fly, and (laughs) you know what I mean."
1: I mean, it's it's a it's a connective. Fly reference at the very least yeah um but yeah that i thought that that whole part was very funny um it shows again just the nature of hell and how it's i, I liked it at the time it was like overcrowded it was like there's way too many people coming in um during world war ii <laughs> you get to see a little bit of the progression of the demons and where they're at in the hierarchy like shax is obviously like much lower lower than she eventually would become mm-hmm. um you know that kind of stuff so there's, there's a lot of, like, storytelling stuff going on here, if, if none of it is, like, moving the plot forward hugely at the time. Yeah. A couple of interesting things that stand out to me in this episode.
0: One, the fact that this lowly demon has the power to, like, punch a card and stop miracles for a while. Yeah. Like, that's pretty powerful, man.
1: I was a little surprised at the whole miracle blocker punch card thing. <laughs> like, yeah. where did you get that? How do people get that? How do he how talks do about it? I think
0: right. He gets like I don't know authorized. I thought he just said he had it.
1: He's like, I still have a, I have this miracle blocker card, and he just pulls it out. I didn't remember like how. Um, and then yeah, I was a little surprised to see it, how effectively it worked. Um, you know, for good dramatic effect, right? Because fail and the ongoing gag, I think, with fail is that he thinks he's really good at magic. And in fact, he is quite bad at it. Um, he just has no, like, it's not that he can't do it. It's, I mean, he's struggled sometimes, but I think it's more just he has no um, natural talent for showmanship. Yeah, he has, like, I mean, no way how to, like, work a crowd or, like, you know, he gets nervous. And yeah. it's so funny and, like, I kind of cringy to like watch him do it But then that, that cringe humor kind of way that I do enjoy
0: I found it interesting because he's he's so fascinated with magic And sleight of hand which is kind of lying to people and I was thinking about yeah. that in terms of like going against what angels would Typically be interested right. in and this is before he's kind of gone to the gone fully into like the neutral zone the gray area yeah. he, this is him kind of pushing towards that and what we realize is that when he's doing this magic most of the time, he's using miracles to do it. So that's another. He lie. said
1: he does. He does one early on by turning the what is it? Turning the turnip into an ink well. <laughs> he's like, I gotta like, I gotta like Warm get him hooked. <laughs> yeah. And that's just such a funny thing to be like, I'm going to turn it turn up into an inkwell as if that's like the most incredible thing you could do. Again, he just has no sense of like showmanship and what would actually be entertaining. Yeah, Um,
0: I did like how it all came together, though. Like, you know, the idea. So the magic shop is also really funny, too, because we've all been into a magic shop. Like, I I think every everybody has this period of time where they're like, maybe I could pick up magic and start being good (laughs) at it. And they want to. At least I did growing up because it's just so fun and and so interesting and it does take like really high level of skill to to yeah. you know redirect someone's eye or to to you know do the trick.
1: I have started to notice that in life as I'm like getting older, right? I'm like there are these things that seem really cool and I w- would love to be able to do. But there are certain things when you look into them you realize, oh the way you get good at this is you have to practice it a shitload and you have yeah. to devote a lot of time to it. And so then it always becomes like a, am I willing to do that yeah. in order to get good at it? Because there's only so much time you have. Yeah, you can only pick a few of those things. And uh, yeah, you got to you got to use your time wisely. The people it's who are really good at magic things... have chosen to devote tons of time to it.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's there's something to be said for people who are just really talented at everything. But I think you can be really good at a few things or just okay at a lot of things so it's like do you want to how do you want to divvy up your time and where do you want to spend your energy and the the more time that goes by the more time i'm like i should probably continue to to you know get better at filmmaking get better you know what i mean do the things that are that are actually working towards my like major goal in life versus like a lot of these hobbies which sucks and it makes me feel like i've talked about on the podcast before i just wish that i had you know was able to pause time just so i could experience and do everything i would like to do
1: Totally. You know, and uh, I used to play guitar a ton and I was in a couple bands back in the day. And like I've I recently started picking it up again and trying to get back into it. And it's just frustrating how much I've lost in the intervening yeah. years where I wasn't playing a lot and wanting to even get back anywhere near to where I was is going to take a huge amount of time. Um, but I am interested in doing it again. And now that I, you know, as more of a hobbyist, um, because like you said, you know, I had to I had to pick and choose and I chose writing as the thing I was going to try and get really good at and spend a lot of time on. Um, And then now podcasting, of course, is something we spend a lot of time (laughs) on. So hopefully we're getting better at that. Um, And there's, I think, a nice overlap there for us. Um, But anyway, this episode, uh, back to that magic shop, I like that it does return in a later episode, too. as like a little callback. We see the snake again, which mm-hmm. I think Crowley puts a hat on, which is interesting, right? Because he was the snake in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some cool little references there. But I really appreciated the physical comedy going on with the zombie in the background yeah. while Aziraphale and Crowley are talking to the shopkeeper. And he's just in the background, like, putting on masks, trying to, like, sneak around, but, like, f- bumping into shit, knocking things over. Um, and nobody noticed this is, again, nobody noticed this is a zombie at all. They're like, oh, I guess it's just what somebody looks like.
0: (laughs) Well, I love that the shopkeeper is like annoyed with him too. He's like, sir, can you fuck off and go look at the (laughs) other stuff on the wall over there? I'm trying to do business over here. There is, so I want to talk about too, the bullet trick and how... It's just like, you know, putting his life in the hands of Crowley, how much that shows their trust and their bond that they've built. And, sure. you know, maybe that wasn't the intention. That wasn't Aziraphale's intention. But when push came to shove, he did. And it worked out. And that, like, yeah. continues to further the relationship. And then I love the payoff of, obviously, like, Aziraphale using the sleight of hand to swap the, the picture of them for this, you know, the poster. Actually yeah. performing magic in that moment. So
1: Yeah. He, he was able to do it in that moment, even with the miracle blocker. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was it was good. It, again, I don't know that we needed to see Aziraphale and Crowley do this to understand their relationship. Like, I think we've seen a lot of examples of this already. But yeah. I didn't mind it. Like, it's cool to see. Again, it's in a period piece. Like, I, if I'm gonna get to see it. Give me something really fun. And this did that. This gave me something really fun.
0: So moving into episode five, this episode is called The Ball. Aziraphale uses a miracle to transform a shopkeeper's meeting into a Regency-style ball, hoping the Jane Austen-inspired atmosphere will get Maggie and Nina together. Shax requisitions a small number of demons via Furfur Fur and prepares to storm the bookshop, but cannot cross the threshold as they have not been invited in. Shax threatens to kill all the humans in the shop unless they surrender Gabriel. Gabriel surrenders himself, but Aziraphale and Crowley's earlier miracle prevents the demons from recognizing him, and they continue to threaten the bookshop. Crowley stalls for time and evacuates most of the human guests, then forces Muriel to arrest him and bring him to heaven.
1: I, uh, this was mostly a fun episode. I do have a couple of small criticisms I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in on here with, but um, I had a good time. I really liked the Jane Austen-inspired ball. Love it. Um, It's
0: so funny, too, because we've covered Pride and Prejudice, right? Like, I appreciate it so much more.
1: Because we covered the film, I think, um, it really landed for me, specifically the 2005 um, Joe Wright film that we covered and how uh, that dance sequence went down, I think was exactly what they were referencing here. Now, maybe that's in all the versions of Pride and Prejudice. I don't know. I haven't seen them all. But um, I, I really appreciated that. And then I liked how it was some sort of, like, magical bewitching that was going on. Everyone was falling into their roles. It was really funny having that one woman who like couldn't say certain words and instead she would just keep saying seamstress over and over again really? um, that was that was really good it took me a second to realize what was going on but then once I caught on to it um it's like they're all fitting into their roles in this like Regency ball mm-hmm. um, and and that was that was pretty clever it was um a little odd the way it was being set up at the same time as this demon plot which is one of the areas that I in my opinion I think didn't work quite as well in this season as stuff has in the past with the demons. Um, And I'll be curious to get your thoughts on it. But like in general, I felt like the demons here felt so defanged and I don't need like world ending stakes all the time. Um, Good omens one did that plenty. So I thought it might be okay. They're going away from the super, like the world's going to end stakes in season two. Instead, we're just focusing on like the demons are attacking the bookshop. Um, But they made the demons so bumbling, and they kept going back to the joke of, like, the demons are just so, so you know, ignorant and and unintelligent. They can't figure out anything. They're so bumbling. Um, Shax keeps, like, frying that one demon over and over again. Yeah. Um, And because they're so bumbling and so toothless, it just didn't feel like – it never felt like a threat to me. And, in fact, it wasn't even really treated seriously at any point in time. Um and, and that's just like a, a taste thing, but for me the in season one I thought they did a better job of balancing like treating threats seriously even as we're having jokes with them. Whereas here it felt like they're so ridiculous that I just never cared or found them threatening.
0: I think this specific group of demons too, right? Like Shaxx yeah. is clearly like maybe she got to a certain level of of, you know, the hierarchy, but she's still like can't get the number of, she wants 10,000 demons. They're like, we got like a hundred for you or whatever. Yeah. And then it, the number's dropping. So it's like this, it's this funny thing. And yeah, they're definitely defanged. I appreciated that we got the smaller scale story. Like you said, like I didn't, I don't want it to be world ending. I kind of yeah. like that. It's I think smarter. that was a,
1: that was a choice. Yeah. But I, you could still have stakes that feel important to the characters, even if the world's not ending, right? Sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. The other thing that kind of makes them seem ridiculous is that they can't spot uh, Gabriel. Obviously, we know yeah. why because of the miracle. But it's so funny when he does this heroic moment of being yeah. like, "I'll just sacrifice myself." Yeah, he's such a noble figure now that he's no longer like he has. He doesn't have his memories as an angel, and he's so pure. And he's like, "I'll sacrifice myself for you all." And he goes out, and he's like, "Take when me He goes on. out
1: in this sparkly coat. It was pretty hilarious, and was referenced in one of the opening sequences, by the way. Um, yeah. And yeah, this like larger than life code. He's like, you can't miss this guy. And he comes out and he's like, here I am. And they're like, what are you? Get out of here. We're looking for Gabriel. Yeah. The
0: The other thing that I was going to say that felt a little weird about this episode was Aziraphale has the best of intentions, but he's like forcing people into scenarios to be in relationships is a little weird. Um, and the way that like they obviously lampshade this later by saying like, we don't need you to do that for us and and yeah. like take our agency away in that way. Um, But again, it was just as it was building up, I was like, what the hell is Aziraphale doing right now? He's taking away people's free will and forcing them together. And yeah, uh,
1: it's it's interesting because I think it does come back and and reflect onto them and their relationship in a way that is interesting in the sense that like they're trying to force something from their perspective onto these two, try and manipulate them. And the humans come back to them later and say, you know, this needs to be our choice. You can't force this kind of thing. Um, which I think makes them realize that ultimately they have a choice in how they're going to approach their relationship.
0: And Maggie and Nina even say as much, right? I think they say like, you guys have some stuff to sort out and they're like, oh yeah, you're right. So uh, there's a couple of big references. You mentioned last week, a couple of doctor uh, sort of nods that I wasn't picking up on. Doctor Who possible nods, especially with David Tennant as Crowley. And there were a ton obviously now it just continued Uh, and I love it you know I think the more I thought about Doctor Who and the more I thought about Good Omens I think there's a lot of overlap not just David Tennant but in terms of like some of the comedic um, moments and then the heart of it and the way that it like puts these stories forth that are kind of small one-offs and, and I don't know, I, there's, a, there's a lot to it that I think there's overlap here. So I think it's smart that they're doing these Doctor Who nods because I think that the, there's a significant portion of the fan base that are coming for David Tennant as Doctor Who fans and they see this. So yeah. the first one is uh, Aziraphale really hilariously is going around the neighborhood and like bribing everybody to come to his, whatever this, this neighborhood uh, event and he, he offers one person, I think it's a musician, a Doctor Who like work print from 1965 that no one else has that only yeah. exists. Uh, so that's funny there. And they, they look back at Crowley a few times during that scene. They give his reaction <laughs> shots. He's like, what are you? What is this bullshit all about? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then um, I mean, I caught that one.
1: <laughs> they yeah, <laughs> say <course>. Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a couple other ones like uh, Tenant picks up a fez at one point. He puts a fez on, which is like a. Oh, massive. that's what
1: he puts on the, on the snake.
0: I think you're right yeah so that's a pretty massive uh, I didn't
1: know that was a Doctor Who thing I admittedly I am NOT a Whovian
0: that was uh, another reference and I think at the end of this episode we get the someone talking about the fly because we're getting the reveal of what the fly is Mm. right at the end of the episode leading into the beginning of next episode and they say the fly is bigger on the inside like they're talking about it's bit which is what the TARDIS is TARDIS is bigger on the inside so they're doing a lot, and I think this shows too. I, I'm I almost guarantee that um, Neil Gaiman is a is a Doctor Who fan. Oh, of probably course. of the classic. I'm sure, Doctor he Who. is. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I'll, I'll just connect that because I was just at the Futurescape Writers Workshop, and and one of the um courses that they put on, um, the presenter I think is this was Matt Kirby, um, was talking about language, and was talking about metaphors and how I think it was metaphors the best ones. Are in his, his phrasing was bigger on the inside. So I just it's an interesting little synchronicity there. Um, yeah, because you know you want to have something that at first might seem simple, but the more you think about it, the more it sort of expands in meaning. And in fact, the more you can do that in your writing, the better um, it'll be. Um, you know, so I think about it like a bunch of little uh, Doctor Who uh, Tardises, I guess, <laughs> when you're putting when you're putting that into your into your prose.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, I think that. Doctor Who is an interesting property because obviously there's the the original run that and then it stopped for a while, started back up in the early 2000s, and I think people are super intimidated by like approaching it. And I do think that there's even Doctor Who fans that will tell you there's a lot of episodes that are very campy or schlocky, and they don't necessarily line up as like one of the best Doctor Who episodes ever. But you enjoy them all for that anyway, and I think this yeah. show has a little bit of that going on. Like even the zombie yeah. episode in this in this section that we're talking about really did feel like kind of, you know, just kind of a one-off fun adventure that they wanted to tell. Like you said, not necessarily super plot relevant, but a fun romp all along the
1: way. And the camp is kind of that thing that um, it's so highly personal, right? Like I think we all have a sense for like how campy still feels fun to us versus starting to get to ridiculous territory where we disconnect from it. And I was watching these episodes with my wife, and there was a few times where I think she hit her threshold before I did. Where she was a little bit like, this is getting too ridiculous, getting too silly at times, right? Yeah. Um and that's that's you know, I kind of like I think I'm like okay with this show being very silly. Um but i I do agree that like I think the first season at you know usually balanced it a little more in the in, in as like a mix of both serious and funny where at times this felt more silly than anything else.
0: And then again, just since we're talking about this episode, the the way that they're having fun with the Jane Austen stuff. Yeah. I want to touch back in on like the choreography is pretty impressive, and like yeah. again, the bookshop looks amazing when they when they do it all up as a ballroom, and it was very funny yeah. how he's
1: like in there just moving it around like a wizard, like moving all his bookshelves and making yeah. like chandeliers come down from the ceiling. It was very funny. Yeah,
0: and then this gets to the like right up to the point where Crowley tells Shax like some sort of lie that hell will descend on them if they kill yeah. innocents or some pact or something. So so like that's how he's able to sneak all these humans out.
1: There's a moment where Crowley. Questions Gabriel. I think Aziraphale. This is like before everything really kicks off. Aziraphale says like, "Go talk to him. Go ask him," because Crowley was doubtful whether or not Gabriel was telling the truth, and they have what I thought was a pretty important conversation in the grand scheme of things. Um, And we'll circle back to it at the end because I've read, I've heard about some fan theories, and some of them circle around this conversation. Um, But Crowley um, reminds us and reminds him. That last season, he was told to shut up and die, and he was in the you know as a zero fail. So he's like, "You told my friend to shut up and die, and I'm not going to forgive that." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like that moment of like, all of a sudden we're being very serious, right? And I like it when that can land, and I think it does land here. I I like that he he is not just willing to believe this, and like it reminds us that Gabriel really was a villain and has been a villain up until this season. Right. Um. And, and you know, I I want to see Crowley like. Being a little skeptical, I liked that, um, and they had you know an interesting conversation back and forth uh, there, and then I think that's where they talk about the memory, uh, and all of that.
0: Yeah, and he asks, he tells him to like jump out the window and all this other stuff. Yeah. and stop. He them. says,
1: "Um, I, f- I feel like an empty house," and and um, that makes sense to Crowley. I'll, re- I'll I'll come back to that with one of the yeah. theories I've heard about. <laughs> cool. Oh, I another thing I wanted to mention. Um, so at the end here, we see Crowley tricking Muriel, the angel Muriel into mm-hmm. taking him up to heaven um, and then when they're up there uh, they, they drop this police act and they go into like a little bit well, this is the next episode um, they go into um, being a little more truthful about what's going on and, and, and maybe not quite so foolish um, even though they get called dim later um, but uh, I, I just continue to like this performance um, and also shout out to people in the comments who mentioned that we had used the wrong pronouns for the character they are they them so we wanted to get that right yeah definitely
0: um, Love this character. You know, this is this is the character that I was talking about last week that they are yeah. the first good demon other than our a zero fail character. So demon or angel. Sorry. So it's it's fun to see that. And again, coming from a place of kind of innocence um, yeah. and then giving, you know, a little bit of a spoiler for the last episode, but be- being given an important role
1: going yeah. forward, I think is very cool as well. So
0: love this character.
1: Yeah, let's get into it. Final episode. Got a lot to say about this one.
0: Yeah, last episode is called Every Day. While Aziraphale, Nina, and Maggie fend off the demons, Crowley discovers the reason for Gabriel's disappearance. He refused to support a second attempt at Armageddon and was demoted from his position as an archangel and wiped of all his memories. Crowley returns to the bookshop where Aziraphale has successfully fended off the demons and accidentally declared war on hell. Beelzebub appears and reveals that Gabriel's memories were hidden in the fly inside the box that Gabriel had been carrying. Gabriel's memories, including those of him conducting a romance with Beelzebub, are restored. He and Beelzebub choose to abandon Heaven and Hell and leave for Alpha Centauri. The Metatron arrives and offers Aziraphale Gabriel's former position and the ability to restore Crowley's status as an angel. Crowley prepares to confess his feelings to Aziraphale. Aziraphale informs Crowley that he plans to accept the Metatron's offer. Crowley asks Aziraphale to abandon heaven and hell with him, just as Gabriel and Beelzebub did. Aziraphale asks Crowley to instead return to heaven as an angel and work with him. Crowley refuses and kisses him. Aziraphale leaves Earth and Crowley to go work for heaven, where the Metatron informs him that his task will be to enact the second coming.
1: Yeah, let's back up to the start of the episode and then we can work our way through and then focus on the end, which I think deserves a lot of attention. Um, So, yeah, here, here, here we are early on we've resumed this sort of like demons outside the bookshop attack um this is where we see Nina and Maggie standing up to these demons and while i enjoyed the way the scene played out um that's that like suspension of disbelief you have to get cuz i'm like these are just regular people are they really going to like look at hell creatures you know with like jaws falling off and long tongues and like even as like silly as they're being like and not be even a little bit intimidated. <laughs> um, it's just like in this in this universe with this silly tone. They're just looking at them and going, "You're ridiculous." But um, I don't know, man. It's it, sometimes I'm like, I could feel myself doubting whether or not this I can buy this. Um, and this is one of those situations where I, I didn't love the, the sequence of them like calling out the demons face to face, and then of course it ends up with them accidentally yeah. inviting them in.
0: I didn't know demons were the same as vampires either. Um, yeah, apparently. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's I,
1: just because it's a zero fails
0: spell bookshop spe- like kind place, of thing. yeah, yeah.
1: Or, or or what, yeah.
0: Um, I think it is. I think they they may have mentioned that. Um, okay, because it's like a whatever safe haven. But anyway, mm. you know, it's interesting to sit and think about characters not being intimidated by demons, because I think there's a commentary being made there as well. And how, you know, we see how bumbling the demons are. We see how ridiculous the angels are and how, you know, hypocritical they are. And yeah. I think that there's something about like giving more agency to humans in this and the way that like humans can think for themselves and they can stand up to these things that are, that are, and maybe that's what sort of what's going on here rather than, I think being, that's
1: what they're, that's what they're going for. Right. Like I think if you zoom out and you're like, what is Neil Gaiman doing? Cause Neil Gaiman's behind all of this. Right. I think he's, empowering humanity to stand up to demons to stand up to angels and making humanity present at these really important conversations that are going on yeah um and that all makes sense to me thematically and i think it's a, a you know a good good choice to try that um i just want to believe it in the moment of the scene yeah. with the particulars of the scene yeah um, the threat I think is those, those two yeah. things need to both be working and like i love all the thematic stuff i just in the moment was like not really believing this record shop owner and coffee shop owner being completely unfazed by by all these demons outside. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, once they do get inside and there's this circle, I thought it was so funny that the demons just kept stepping into the circle and I'm like, stop yeah.
1: stepping into the circle.
0: It just goes to show how dumb they are too. Yeah. Like, they're
1: like, they're like flies to a bug zapper, right? Essentially. Uh, they just keep walking right into it. And, then I, and I do like, think- at some point they'll realize they can go around.
0: Right. And I do think at some point in the attack, they do get more intimidated by the demons once they're inside and they're surrounding them. Yeah. So like the threat, I think the the conversation at the doorway is even definitely. They're, little... they're
1: spraying them with uh, fire extinguishers yeah. the whole time. Uh, so uh, at the same time, this is happening. We get Crowley, the murder horn, murder hornet um, in the beehive, which I thought mm-hmm. was quite funny. Um, I like how he just changes his appearance to look like an angel. It's even got the little golden uh, snakes on the side instead of the black snakes. Yeah. Well, and I like to, his,
0: his garb, like his, his costuming wasn't white either. It was like dingy gray yeah, <laughs> yeah. or something, you know, it was yeah, just yeah. pretty fun.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, he's still walking the same way, but, um, it was really funny too, how they go up to the, the files and, um, Muriel says you would have to be enlist a couple of very high ranks within the angel hierarchy in order to access this. And Crowley is able to access it. And he says they never change their passwords Um, Which I thought was really funny, but also tells us that Crowley was quite high ranking um, before everything, which makes sense, right? If he's like designing the universe and everything. But like um, it starts to ask a question that we'll revisit as we go. But like who is Crowley
0: Yeah, is
1: the question. And is I assume Crowley was not his name as an angel. So what was his name as an angel? Um, We can revisit that. As we go season, season three, maybe. Uh, Maybe, uh, but also we can theorize a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard some stuff. I'm not going to claim that this is my theories, but I've heard some interesting theories.
0: Well, I mean, the uh, just like biblical stuff, like the idea of a fallen angel, like Lucifer was a fallen angel. So Satan, you know, would be a high ranking, I believe, also angel. So maybe there's something there. Are
1: you saying that Crowley could be Satan, could be Lucifer himself?
0: I don't know if he's Lucifer himself, but there's a correlation going on here.
1: Well, that's one of the theories. So yeah. you're touching on one of the theories that exists in the fandom that I've that I've heard about. Um, and there are a couple of different moments that give a little bit of evidence for this because he repeatedly, and we see him in this scene, doesn't remember angels who he used to work with. And they say, yeah. like, don't you remember? And he's like, I meet a lot of people. Um, <laughs> which and is always at, hilarious. Which is funny, but also... We've seen that they are able to strip angels of their memory when they're, like, casting them down. Mm -hmm. Um, We see what they do to Gabriel, right? So the theory could be that when Crowley was cast out of heaven, memories were stripped. Um, And so in that sense, Crowley could actually be Lucifer, which Crowley was the snake in the Garden of Eden. That kind of lines up. And that would also explain why, where is Satan? Where is Lucifer?
0: We do see Satan in the first season though,
1: right? He comes out, he's like about to come out of the ground. We we asked, we had a debate about whether or not that was actually Satan or like yeah. just like some sort of big demon or like what that was. Yeah, It was a little bit unclear. And that is that is a good point. And I, I would have to like go back and watch that scene again. Like, is that Satan? And then supposedly Benedict Cumberbatch was the voice of Lucifer at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know... That gets into the stuff with Francis McDormand and, and uh,
0: the Metatron here.
1: Yeah. So one of the theories I've seen is that uh, Crowley could actually be an angel named Raphael. Um, I don't know all of my like angel names, but apparently there are only so many like super high-ranking archangel types that um, could fit the bill here. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting to hear about how like when they're talking about with Gabriel, they cast one angel down, and they're like... One one is a good story, but two is an institutional problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny. But then also, like, isn't that what happened to Crowley? Yeah. Interesting, interesting to note. Um, and, maybe and that's, we'll get some and answers that's the about Metatron that
0: saying future. that, too, right? Saying I think that it there's was an institutional yeah. problem. So, hey. Uh, w- and we can talk about the Metatron here in a second. I think we have some yeah. stuff with Aziraphale and Crowley to talk about. So they are. The Metatron shows up and is talking to. Uh, Aziraphale and kind of yeah. mentioning and I was I so this was this is
1: after the demons are dealt with so the demons get dealt with by um Aziraphale getting his halo out of his head and tossing it like a grenade yeah, I which see. I thought was kind of a fun interesting moment because we haven't really ever seen the halo I don't think until now um but what was really funny about that was or what was really I guess interesting about that is that apparently this is a declaration of war on hell Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like this moment of like, oh my God, we've declared war, but then it's back. To, it's like walked back. It seems like, and, and that doesn't seem to be the case, but maybe going into season three, there could still be some lingering tensions there.
0: I think there definitely will be some lingering tensions. I think we have seen in flashbacks, Aziraphale with his halo over his head, but it's interesting that it was like within his head, he pulled it out. And I think the implication is that he wasn't supposed to have it any longer since he's kind of been like excommunicated in ways. Uh. Um, So and then he pulls it out, throws it as a grenade, which it was just a cool sequence. Like that's such a cool and clever thing. Um, And I even think like everything that goes on here, wrapping up the season is Neil Gaming just being so clever, like the way that he thinks up, like everything that went on with Gabriel, the Beelzebub stuff, the way that it's mirroring Aziraphale and Crowley and like a a lot of how he leaves this. And then the Metatron stuff, too, has some cool commentary.
1: Well, Um, this and this is where we get the reveal uh, what's what the mystery has been. Um, It's a little convoluted, but it's essentially, uh, if I can get this right, Gabriel um, and Beelzebub come to an agreement to not do Armageddon again. Um, And then because of this, Gabriel gets in trouble because he, he says, nah in the in the meeting. <laughs> I do love not... the moment
0: too. Like John Hamm getting to do that and it's like very madmen, very like like I mean, I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want. Like <laughs> I'm the Archangel. Like what are you yeah. gonna do about it?
1: Um and then they, they then he gets repercussions and he's able to use this fly that was gifted to him by Beelzebub in a flashback to put his memory in. Um and then he writes a message on the bottom of the box it says my memory's in the fly and then he goes to Aziraphale's bookshop with this box naked (laughs) in an attempt to kind of hide out and try and preserve his memory trusting that Aziraphale would hide him from the angels a little convoluted but I can see how this how this plays out my mind's inside the fly or whatever yeah ironic to not look at the one thing he had with him for any clues yeah Um, (laughs) but you know you need for plot reasons you need to not see that at the bottom
0: (laughs) yeah and then it makes sense with the
1: matchbox and like it kind of lines a bunch of things up that, yeah. that had been
0: doled out through the throughout the
1: season, and we were right in some way about yeah. the the fly being a, a, some sort of connection to Beelzebub. So I like that we we did c- catch on to that. We were all over it.
0: You know, it yeah. was it would have been really difficult to nail it, but I definitely saw the correlation with the
1: fly and Gabriel. I didn't see and the Beelzebub. romance. The romance was surprising to me. I mean, it makes sense now because it becomes totally. it becomes something that Aziraphale and Crowley. It as an example that they can look at um they can see that it's possible they can see what happens and how heaven and hell react um they the, the little story we get the mini story of, with the flashbacks in the bar um, which which again is yeah.
0: another part that i was like something definitely everybody knew that the thing happened in the bar
1: yeah. um, nothing to didn- do with the um with the with the lodge and the um what was no that, the
0: the Masons thing. The, the... Masons, yeah, yeah, nothing
1: to do with the Masons. Totally red herring there, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, it was fun to see that. And then like uh, the 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 little romance that develops, I thought was was pretty was pretty endearing. Um, I especially liked, uh, when they walked into the bar and ordered two goblets of your intoxicating liquid. And then the partner was like, what do you want? And he's like, whichever ones it is you humans usually orally consume. Um, and I was like, I got to order a drink like that one day.
0: <laughs> They're going to definitely think you're an angel or a demon if you do that. <laughs> um, they, uh, I think he just ends up giving him two pints as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, like you s- got two pints. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very funny. Um, and this, this uh, now that we've wrapped up all this, this danger with the demons, now it becomes this like big level negotiation between heaven and hell about what to do with Gabriel and Beelzebub because both sides are furious that they are romantically linked now. Um, and then I thought there was a really funny moment where I think it's, um, I think it's Michael turns to the, and goes, why are there humans present? Turn them into pillars of salt. Um, and Crowley's like, let me get him out of here. (laughs) It's just like a a funny reference to the Bible, right?
0: (laughs) Where, you know, stuff just happens and you're like, oh, that was brutal for almost no reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the negotiation also includes the stuff we talked about with the Xerophil possibly declaring war. And they're all kind of like, this is, I think where they squash it. Who? does Gabriel do a bunch of the, I think he does a bunch of the squashing, right? Or Crowley, or maybe it's the Metatron showing up. As
1: yeah, to say, the Metatron showing up is definitely what, what finally quashes it. Um, where, where he's like, yeah, they, they, just, they can go. And, and I think, I think he gives the permission. They teleport off apparently to Alpha Centauri, um, together. Yeah. Which is pretty funny. yeah uh, um, Crowley mentions there's like a couple of fun planets there or something. So apparently there's maybe it's going to go hang out with the aliens.
0: I think that's very Doctor <laughs> Who centric as well. I I can definitely remember vaguely uh, some sort of mention of Alpha Centauri, of, you know, the 10th Doctor talking about it. So I'm yes. sure for like the massive fans who remember the, uh, some
1: scene, I'm, I bet you that's a Doctor Who reference there as well. So we get the Metatron. Metatron is... Very interesting character here introduced at the end because the Metatron is supposed to be forget, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but like the voice of God, right? Yeah, isn't that but, the role of the Metatron?
0: Yeah, I found this to be confusing too because I, when he showed up, I'm like, All right, voice of God,
1: he's in essence God, but not God. Yeah, he's it's like, like God's representative, is my, my, yeah, like the mouth but, of Sauron, but for God, sh- sh- exactly. <laughs> great, great comparison, but
0: it's, it's like to the point that I was like, Oh, so there if he's the voice of God and then there's also God, like who has power over who at that point? God, I guess, like
1: the almighty God, like the number one God. I wouldn't put it past anything to say that like Metatron went rogue and is doing, so I think Metatron, it might be a big villain is where I'm going with this. Um, I think he's 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 playing like he's a hero. You know, he forgives what's gone on. He diffuses tensions, but um, everything else he does is pointing towards villain to me.
0: Yeah, well, I will say in what I remember, the second coming includes eventually like battles from heaven and hell like you know like some sort so of so
1: second coming isn't that the second coming of christ
0: jesus yeah
1: yeah so we've the also Messiah. seen i guess we've seen the antichrist but not the San, not the second coming of actual christ so that yeah that's that yeah. that i guess would be the and i
0: want to say that the anti different. like all of that is like interwoven i just i don't remember very well so someone correct us you know people who i don't know biblical it's been a long really, time yeah. since
1: we d- we you know have looked at a bible or gone to it <laughs> Got to church. <laughs> yeah, but I think that like
0: the Antichrist, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, like the Second Coming, all that stuff is all wrapped up in like Revelations, the Book of Revelations. So it's like all the stuff that's you know everything's coming to an end, and the Lord's come back and takes people with them, and then hell on earth for a while, and then eventual end of Earth, I believe. And that's or, what
1: seems like heaven has been wanting, right? And yeah. and Crowley points out like you know, if life ends because of heaven or if life ends because of hell, life still ends. The earth is still destroyed. Um, now, importantly, the Metatron also goes and gets a, like a cup of coffee and then comes and gives it to Aziraphale. Um, and then it's like telling him all this stuff and, and, and inviting him. inviting let's go have a talk. Offers him a position in heaven, we find out, um, as to lead heaven, to be like the new leader of heaven. Which Aziraphale is still like, got enough, you know, lingering angelness that, uh, you know, we can see that he's, you know, very tempted by this. Um, and the position of, like, second-in-command could be given to Crowley. And he brings that to Crowley. What was your read on this, on this?
0: I mean, now that you've said something about him possibly being a villain, it definitely rings pretty true to me. But at first, I kind of was thinking, like, this is something that Aziraphale, in the back of his mind, always wanted. And then you can see it when he gives Crowley the offer of you could come and join me and be an angel again and everything would be great and like not realizing that Crowley would never want that there's a reason he left in the first place and like he's like you're buying back into the system that's abused us for such a long time um so what's the even if you're at the top you're you know propagating it and what's the point
1: I would have thought Aziraphale would realize that about Crowley. now I know he could be quite you know slow to things at times but you would think he would know that Crowley is not going to be okay with this right yeah, definitely.
0: But um, I get
1: so um, t- it seemed a little weird. I, I it, and you know what it was? It felt to me like it was just a false note from the character. And I was I was at first kind of put off by this and going like, "Why would he do this? This doesn't make sense to me." Um, it seems like they're they're setting up this like a sort of dramatic unrequited love moment um, just to to like string us along for the next season. That was my first take on it. Um, but then I you know I thought more about it and um, I heard some of these theories and they make a lot of sense to me. Um, that, that might explain this, um, because earlier on, Aziraphale, when Gabriel and Beelzebub, their love was first revealed, looked right at Crowley like, this is our moment, right? We can we can finally, you know, yeah, go off together. Clean. Yeah, and, and we see that this is a really powerful emotion for him. But he loses that when he's offered this job, right? Um, And, like, maybe this is something that Xerophil would do, but to me it felt a little bit false. It's, like, uh, almost a betrayal of everything we've been watching to see him fall in line so quickly. Um, So the theory that I read has to do with the coffee, being that the coffee is in some way a miracle. Some people have claimed that they hear the miracle sound at some point when Metatron is, like, either holding the coffee or getting the coffee. Cool. Xerophil's whole sort of tone seems to shift after he drinks it. He becomes a lot more open to it, mm-hmm. a lot more interested in taking this position. Um, and then it seems like even there's a moment where um, the Metatron says, like, are you sure? And then it looks like Aziraphale is going to say no, but then, like, something comes over him, and all of a sudden he's just like, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and so people have pointed to this as maybe the Metatron is literally manipulating Aziraphale through a miracle.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to think about, too, because if this is God,
1: and it, I guess the, you have to differentiate or the Or is the Metatron go, gone rogue? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't know. Yeah,
0: because, like, if it's God, then God could, it, within this religion, within what, you know, this show has established, God can do anything. Yeah. Um, and also the idea of giving free will to Aziraphale and Crowley was had to have been done by God in the first place. So for God... The voice of God even to say, you know, come and do this for me. It wouldn't even be a question necessarily. But then it's also going against the free will that he gave them in the first place.
1: Well, we don't know what a voice of God even means because like that just might be the rank. That might just be that this is a very high ranking or special rank that an angel has. But like Maybe. I kind of like, took it to theoretically. Be there's like. Yeah yeah like a literal thing going on but maybe there's not maybe maybe yeah. this is just like a super high ranking angel that supposedly has the ear of god but like god has been so distant from this series that it sure. would be weird to me to have even a character like this who has like a direct line yeah. Even though that's the implication, um, because in in stories like this, and you know this isn't the only one that does it, it's kind of essential that God is like completely uninvolved and and s- mysterious. Yeah, because God God's too powerful, and yeah, if you start involving God, it gets Deus Ex Machina, weird. right? The, yeah. the ultimate. <laughs> You'd have the entire show just the be original a Deus one. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so there's a couple big moments here we got to touch on before we finish. The big kiss, of course, is a huge moment where yeah. Crowley grabs a zero fail, kisses him. Um, this has been a long time coming and, and, you know, I think was was sweet to see.
0: I I was really excited to see it. I knew that this was coming. I think we knew that we were going to see the full acknowledgement of this relationship and, and their love. I was it was kind of under duress, which kind of yeah. almost bu- it, it bugs me a little bit when I look like I'm like, oh, that was their first. As far as we know, kiss and embrace and everything. It was meant to be this magical moment. I, mean, and I, I think said it was it's like first, sort yeah. of under duress. And I was like, ooh that kind of changes it for me. And it's I almost think-
1: like Crowley trying to convince him.
0: Right. And I think I wanted to see both of them be real super into it after all this buildup and all this time. And I don't maybe there'll be people who love the the way that it was done. But for me, I was like, oh, man, that kind of taints it a little bit. And now I want, you know, I think the ultimate grand scheme and long term goal of this is to see them happily together. And and this is obviously just like part of that that makes me want to see that in the future. I mean, it was
1: heartbreaking when he says, I forgive you. Like after that, like I thought that was that was a line that I'll remember. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was sad. Yeah, big moment. I I think it was it was a clever thing on the part of Crowley to be like, I got to get through to, to him what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think Crowley is a little bit like, I can't believe that nothing like that you're still holding true to this. And it's believable enough to where I could see Crowley buying it and not knowing that something else is going on, but I'm of the opinion something else is going on. Maybe I'll be proven wrong.
0: And to start theorizing and talking about another eventual season, I I love the idea of setting these characters up to where like it seemed like a zero fail was more on board with them being together as a couple. Just it seems like Crowley with his demon side was kind of resistant to it. And now we're going to see the flip of that where Aziraphale is in a position where you know you're going to get Crowley fucking around and trying to like ruin things and and convince Aziraphale that like these are the ways that that, you know, the system is fucking us over. And so we need to fix that. And I I think it's going to be so cool to see Crowley fight really hard for Aziraphale where I felt like Aziraphale already seemed like the type that would have fought really hard for Crowley.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I'm excited to see how that plays out. Um, one other thing, we talked about Muriel a lot. They get control of the bookshop. So I like that at least I, th- I think the bookshop will be a returning set if yeah. we get another season, which is good.
0: Well, it's so iconic from both seasons too, both right? Both seasons.
1: Yeah. And then um, I thought it was really interesting that they are given this book called um, The Crow Road by Ian Banks. And Ian Banks is an author I've heard a lot about. I've never actually read Um, but this gives a lot of prominent time and it's shown to be the book that Muriel is reading. So I researched a little bit about it and like the prevailing theory seems to just be that like, there's a lot of similar themes and topics about what it means to be human and like life and death and like forbidden romances and stuff like that. There's a lot of similar thematic elements in that book to Good Omens. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is the reason. Why? But um, I just thought it was curious, right? Like if an author of Neil Gaiman's caliber is is very specifically choosing a book to have Muriel be reading, it's got to mean something, right? Yeah.
0: It's like the ultimate recommendation. Like that makes, I'm going to read it because of that. You know what I mean? (laughs) If Neil Gaiman wants it to be this prominent and this important, I I respect his opinion. Some
1: people were theorizing maybe too that Neil Gaiman is giving a nod to that book because the plot of it, there's some similarities and maybe it was an inspiration for the plot of season two. Okay. Yeah. I could see that. So um, we
0: do need to talk about this season in comparison to last season if we were yeah, just going to so wrap this up. Yeah, so normally
1: at the end of our coverage, we compare the adaptation to the source material. But here we don't really have that. Um, we, we've already done that for the first season. But yeah, we thought we could instead compare se- season one to season two, which one we liked better. Do you want to start? Sure. I- I'll start out by saying that. I
0: love watching the show, first season, second season. I love the continuation. I really like watching it. Um, I think that both seasons do, the first season does a great job of introducing the characters, giving like a really round story that we can sink our teeth into. And it's like approachable and also really fulfilling. And then I think in the way that sequels often do, this takes chances. And it does things differently it goes smaller scale i love that we get much more of david Tennant and and michael sheen as, as crowley and aziraphale i'm going to continue to remember these two actors for these roles uh for really the rest of their careers i think that introducing more john Hannon was really fun throughout the season uh getting to see more of heaven and hell more demons more angels is fun um, and then, yeah, I like the way that like you, you mentioned humanity is kind of being centered in a way that bringing them to the table, making them important figures, because otherwise this just happens on the outskirts of this of, of you know, life. And, we you know, we're just uh, having to deal with it, I guess, whatever they decide. We're at the whims of these like angels and demons. I'm going to go ahead and say the first season just because I felt like it really had this rounded story and it came directly from the, the mouths of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And it and. I think that this is perfectly serviceable as a continuation of the story. I think you can definitely feel Neil Gaiman's uh, influence over it, but also Terry Pratchett's voice. I think, like I mentioned last week, there's a bit of Terry Pratchett infused into this, like a a significant amount. And as connective tissue to lead us to another season, I'm excited. But that first season really just felt fully realized.
1: Uh, I'll keep mine short. Uh, I'm in. I'm in agreement with you. I think the first season takes it here. I mean, uh, naturally, right? Like it's got the whole book to to adapt. And in fact, like the first season almost felt like there was so much story, and, and they were cramming in six episodes. This one felt a little bit more like they were they were drawing it out. Um, it felt like interstitial to me. That now that you've revealed that the maybe the plan was always for this third season to be what ties back into what they had planned originally. Um, I can see it. There's a lot going for it. I'll echo everything you said there. Um, But, uh, yeah, it it is, I think, the first season for me was, was the superior one with the full caveat that this was very fun, and I enjoyed it, and I will definitely be back for a third season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, last week, we were speculating, like, could they do more? Or would we want yeah. more? I think we both know that they will do more as long as this is successful. With yeah. the way
1: they ended this, they got to. Yeah,
0: they will do yeah. more and we want more. I, I, yeah. I'm i excited to see the, the continuation of the story. I trust Neil Gaiman to to land this and I'm excited to see like what they
1: had planned as, as a finale for, for Good Omens. Absolutely. Um. So stick around to the very end of the episode where we're going to reveal our very next project. Um, but before you go, uh, give us a like and a subscribe if you're on YouTube, if you are listening to this on uh, an audio form, we are on every major podcasting platform and make sure to, uh, leave us a rating and review and let us know you enjoyed our good omens to coverage. We'd love to hear from you that way.
0: Also make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, all of those at ink to film. We're also on TikTok. all of the places that you can yeah. be on social media. I think we're there. So check us out.
1: And once again, if you'd like to support us
0: monetarily, patreon.com slash intofilm.
1: And thank you to Jeremy Blake for his track, Heaven and Hell, which serves as our intro and outro music. So all that's left to do is to announce our next project. Um, and that is going to be one that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And that is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Um, we're also going to be covering the 50s adaptation that is probably the most famous version of it. Um, even if you don't know a lot about Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, I recommend checking out the episode because we're gonna do a deep dive into it. We'll talk a lot about who Jules Verne was as an author, very important figure in the history of science fiction.
0: Yeah, it's a book that I read when I was pretty young, when I was seeking out adventure stories, and I think I've also read Journey to the Center of the Earth. So like, I didn't I'm know ex- you'd read it. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: I've never read it before.
0: I'm excited to go back in though, because you know that was a time that I feel like I got a really surface level read of it. So uh, you know, yeah, we'll dig in deep this this coming week.
1: Cool. All right, we hope you all return for that. And until next time, keep adapting.